Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we invite you to find your story within God's bigger story. We are a church that lives for something bigger than ourselves and is passionate to proclaim and demonstrate the way of Jesus. If you're interested in attending in person, our weekend services happen every week on Saturday evenings at 5 or Sunday mornings at 9 or 1030. Today we are wrapping up a series we've been doing for the last several weeks on prayer. And today, specifically, we are going to be discussing the spiritual realm in the next 30 minutes or so. Uh, As Christians, uh, when we talk about the spiritual realm, we cannot but help talk about spiritual warfare. And so real quick, I just want to acknowledge, uh, because it is funny as the preacher, um, the lights are brighter than you realize, right? We can see those who are sleeping, true story. little hit to the pride, but that's okay. Probably keeps us humble. Um, And we can see those who are squirming. And this is a topic that makes many of us uncomfortable. And so I see usually there are three responses when we talk about spiritual warfare or specifically the spiritual realm. The first is to dismiss. Many of us, as uh, the topic comes up, we enjoy living a life. And by the way, I think Christians and atheists can both fall into this category where we can use solely rationale and reason to understand the material world and are comfortable, if not even unwilling, to acknowledge or interact with anything beyond the physical. The second category, which I actually think is growing statistically as a pastor who works with uh, millennials in college and then Gen Z high school and really younger, what I see is the growing uh, group of those who are interested in the spiritual realm. Uh, Students of mine, this is a true story. I was talking to a student the other day. She said that someone on her team at school was changing in the locker room and all of a sudden crystals fell out of her bra. And the student looked at her and said, whoa, like, why did you shove rocks in your bra? And the girl explained that these crystals make you courageous, okay? Pause. I love that we live in a day and age where it is bizarre to believe that a creator or some intelligent force designed the world with intention, but it's totally normal to believe that crystals shoved in your bra make you courageous, right? Anyway, I digress. But then we also have zodiac signs and astrology. So many of my students and and students who I know have downloaded apps of horoscopes or they believe that based off the time of the year that they were born, they share common characteristics with hundreds of millions of people because of where the earth was in relationship to the stars. I'm sorry if I'm stepping on toes here, by the way. But there is an interest in our world with this spiritual Again, I think this occurs both in the church and out of the church. Many of you here, you, you maybe without realizing it, have some bit of a um, spiritual cocktail that you're a fan of, that you buy into. But what I want us to do today, for those who are Christians, and if you're not a Christian or you don't follow Jesus or your grandma drugged you to church, dragged you to church, maybe drugged you, that would be a crazy grandma. Um, <laughs> you seriously need a new grandma. But... But if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, that's okay. You can be along for the ride. The reality is we believe probably weirder things than you'll hear today. And yet we believe them because we trust in the figure and the person of Jesus. But what I'd love for all of us to do is move into the last group here, which is those who understand the spiritual realm. In short, this is really just to kind of show my cards, my goal for this morning. 
is that you leave realizing the enemy of God is real, God's kingdom has come, and you have a role to play. I, um, I oftentimes when I talk with Christians, I realize that, um, like I said, there are kind of all that, there's a full spectrum. There's those who um, they're really hoping to figure out today how to exercise their neighbor's dog. It's like, you don't need this sermon. You need the animal control number, right? Um, and yet there are those who also have a misunderstanding around spiritual warfare to believe that it's, it's more like spiritual disagreement or spiritual confusion or spiritual misunderstanding. But I want to pause as we begin and name that, no, no, no. As Christians, we use intentional wording here to say this is spiritual warfare. There are forces that oppose the good and pleasing will of God in your lives and in mine. And sometimes they're big and flashy and they create great stories later. And other times they're very normal and mundane. Uh, when I first came to Waterstone seven and some months, change years ago, I uh, lived in one place. I lived at Denver Seminary. My wife and I, that's where we met. Uh, and then I remember I moved. And I moved into this new house off, off the campus. And the first night I went in there, you got to understand, I did not grow up in hyper-spiritual um, communities where everything was like the devil or not the devil. I grew up actually in the kind of dismissal um, worldview. Where as a Christian, it was like, ah, I'm not comfortable with that. And so I'd rather just not acknowledge it. And so I, I moved into this new house. It was my first night. And I remember walking into the bedroom and I remember immediately realizing something is wrong here. I, I immediately thought, okay, am I just tired? I moved all day. What's going on? Uh, but something inside, I, I realized, no, there, there's something off. Um, and it ended up as as I was there realizing, I prayed out loud and that's the moment I realized, oh my gosh, there's a demonic presence in this room. Now again, if, if you're along for the ride today, I understand how that might sound. What's so interesting is I went into work the next day to this building, I went into Daniel Reeves' office and I talked to Paul Jocelyn, our teaching pastor, and I said, you're gonna think I'm crazy, but I'm pretty sure there's a demonic presence in the room of the house I just leased. And I signed a lease. <laughs> it's like, I can't just go to another house, okay? Maybe I'm cheap, but I was like, no, Jesus has power. We got to figure this out. And to my surprise, Larry Renault and our elders were not surprised. See, this is a conversation that we don't often have in the church, or at least we have it when we have to have it. But today we're going to have it because we do have to have it, whether or not you feel that pressure. The elders weren't surprised. In fact, that is something we've seen in the front range area and people see throughout the world. The TSA does not stop spiritual warfare from entering the U.S. Do you know they didn't even catch the shoe bomber guy? Literally, the TSA didn't catch that guy. You and I, people like you and I caught that. So the TSA is definitely not stopping demons, okay? Let's just get that clear. My goal, though, is that we would leave here with a framework and foundation as Christians for understanding the spiritual realm and more specifically, the spiritual warring that happens in our world. And recognizing that it's not always the big dramatic stories like I just shared, and I'll come back to that, but it also are some of the things that are normalized and common in every day. 
Things like Ouija boards or tarot cards that again in Gen Z and millennials and even Gen Xers and beyond, we are seeing a rise in an interest, a dabbling, a fascination in the spiritual realm. So what I'd like to do is look back at the passage that we looked at today. And again, you're going to get tired of me hearing this, but hopefully you'll remember it. My goal is that as we look at this passage and we actually look at the demonic and what they tell us about Jesus and his power, that you leave realizing that God's enemy is real, the kingdom has come, and that you have a role. So let's look at that, uh, Matthew 8, 28. It says, Jesus, when he arrived at the other side in the region of the uh, Gardenians, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. Pause. The, the Bible just at a base level acknowledges and recognizes that the demonic exists, that the spiritual realm exists and not just in a neutral manner or maybe neutral to good, like there's something that we can learn from it, but it acknowledges the spiritual realm exists and there are entities that oppose the will of God. What's interesting about this passage is it's one of the few that shows up in all three synoptic gospels, basically Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so scholars, even historical critics, have a hard time dismissing the fact that this event happened or the writers who died believing this truly believed that this happened. In other words, God's enemy is real. Uh, we're going to jump and look real quickly at Ephesians, where Paul writes more about the enemies of God. Because I want to make sure as you leave and you have this foundation, this framework for a biblical understanding of spiritual warfare, that it's not a binary, that it's the devil or it's not the devil. Paul says in this passage, it's a lot more than that. Let me explain. If you would, would you read the underline with me? As for you, you were dead in your transgressions, your sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the rulers of the kingdom of the air. So this world is this world. We'll talk about that in a minute. The ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's the devil. And then we'll keep going. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Paul is trying to equip you as followers of Jesus, if you're here today, and myself to realize that it is not just the devil or not the devil. That we live in a world where there are enemies of God. The first he identifies is the world. What that means is that we live in a world, in a context, where the cultural norms and traditions and values are antithetical. They naturally flow in the opposite direction to God's will. This is any time in human history when we create systems that we value someone based off what they can produce or how much power they hold or what they can offer us. Paul says you live in a world that without the devil or your own in inclinations is fallen. It continues to say, then there is, actually we'll stay on that text, there is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He's speaking about the demonic realm. That yes, there's the world, but then there's this force outside of that. A spiritual entity, let's be clear, the devil is not in all places at all times. He's not under your bed. The devil is one spiritual being with demons. Interestingly, by the way, the Bible says that a third of them in poetic language fell from heaven, which means what, math teachers in the room? There are twice as many angels as there are demons. 
But there is a spiritual entity which also opposes God. And then finally, the flesh. This is where we come into the equation. The flesh is Paul's way of saying, yeah, there's broken systems and there's spiritual realities. But at the end of the day, sometimes you and I, we don't need any help to oppose God's will from outside sources. That any time that we uh, have felt just hated and judged by a coworker, to reading a story where someone has, has killed another person, that these are all along the spectrum of the inclinations of the flesh to oppose God's will. There is a, there's a book called Three Crucial Questions Around Spiritual Warfare written by a gentleman named Clinton Arnold. And he spells this out really well on kind of the pitfalls that we can get into. This is the first that he shares. It's, um, it's where we downplay the devil's role. He, he basically says that there are those who say, no, this is a dismiss possibly, right? They say most of it's the flesh, or the world. We live in a broken world. We're broken people. I don't really like the idea of the devil or the demonic. He says there's another mistake we can make though, and that is actually going to the other extreme, where everything is the devil. Where, no, you didn't speed. The devil made you do it. No, dude, you're, tar- you're chronically late. Amen? Someone knows who I'm talking to, all right? So in other words, this is where we say, no, everything is the devil. Oh, it's all spiritual warfare. And he says, that's a mistake. We're giving too much credit to the enemy. And so instead, Arnold encourages us to have a balanced view where we recognize that, yes, there is a spiritual realm that's at play and it influences and interacts with the world and our own inclinations, but it is not at fault or at least giving credit for all evil done. We need to have a balanced view as Christians of the various enemies of God that oppose God's will so that we have a framework as Christians to engage spiritual warfare. Let's close and the band will come out. Oh, I'm so glad you guys got it. Last night, every head bowed. I'm not, and I, I honestly, I was like, shame on you. I'm telling Larry, all right? Now, someone right now is like, why is everyone laughing? I thought we were done. Okay, well, you'll pick it up in like five minutes. So, uh, yes, no, there is so much more to say. There, there is so much more to share on the topic. See, what, what I sh- said in the beginning, I'm showing my cards. I really want you to get that the enemy of God is real but that his kingdom has come. We'll unpack that and you have a role. In other words, there is so much more that we as Christians now have, not just to know, but now to act on. And so here it is. In short, in regards to the kingdom of God, I want you to get this. We'll see from reading the words of the demonic how they actually disclose and reveal their cards that they know the person, the power, and the plan of Jesus Christ. So let's look first, verse 29, at how they reveal that they know the identity, the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 29 says this, What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. The demonic, at their first interaction with Jesus in this narrative is to acknowledge and recognize who he is. Now, let me be clear. This was not a sign of honoring. 
Uh, Theologians, they think there's two options here. The first is that they're trying to embarrass Jesus by disclosing and revealing his true identity before the appointed time. It's a theme throughout multiple gospels where Jesus says it's not yet the appointed time. So maybe they're trying to get Jesus to leave by embarrassing him. The other theory is that it's a little like you open up the curtain and you realize your daughter is supposed to be inside 30 minutes ago and she's inside of Sid's car. Who names her boy Sid, by the way, right? And so you, you pick up the phone, you call and you say, Josephina, Marie, Mary, and you realize I hated my aunt. Why did I give her that middle name? But you say, get inside this house right now. In other words, it's a way of saying of mastering another person of power. In fact, in Mark 5, 9, we're not going to look at it, but Jesus actually says to some demons, what is your name? It's a spiritual principle, which by the way, you could read a million blogs of self-proclaimed theologians who live in their mom's basement telling you why. But the reality is we don't know exactly how it works, but that there's something about naming a spiritual entity that brings power. The demons are trying to ironically exercise Jesus from that area, whether by embarrassing or claiming power over him. Jesus says to them, nothing in reply, but actually I want to emphasize when they say, what do you have to do with us in verse 29? Blomberg, who is a, um, Craig Blomberg, he teaches at Denver Seminary. Uh, He says that this is uh, less of a statement of what are you doing here and more of what do you specifically have to do with us? Because you are so drastically and vastly different than who we are. The demons recognize the person of Jesus Christ. And as we'll see in a second here, they recognize the power of Jesus Christ. Let's look back at verse 29 briefly. They say, have you come here to torture us? They recognize that Jesus is so drastically different that even being in his presence is painful for them. And skipping down to verses 31 and 32, just follow along as I read this. The demons begged Jesus. Just think about this for a moment. Where in fiction have you read that phrase? The demons begged. Where in a movie Hollywood's finest, have you seen the demons begging? Where in the rest of scripture have you seen the great patriarchs and fathers and mothers of our faith, the demons begging? Jesus causes the demons to beg. The Jesus that is nailed to a cross for the sake of people like you and I who repent and repeat and repent and repeat, that powerful Jesus has demons begging him. What's amazing is with all the tactics of the enemy in this moment where they try to get power over Jesus or maybe uh, share his true identity or they're begging him for one thing or another, Jesus replies with only one word. Again, Craig Blomberg is helpful here where he says, a scholar of the New Testament, specifically the Gospels, and actually wrote quite literally the book on Matthew, He says, the Greek fails us in translation to English here. Jesus actually is saying, not just go, but you may go. And these demons beg Jesus and Jesus gives them permission to leave. A lot of times I think we think about Jesus and the devil and his demons a little bit like Superman and Lex Luthor and his minions, right? 
Some of you, you know, you grew up with this version of it. I still love this version, to be honest, probably because I like the lowest lane the most in there, but that's a different story. So, so in this version, right, you've got Superman and Superman's a good guy. And we kind of all walk into the theater, right? Not thinking that his story ends here today at this matinee show, but knowing that, no, he's going to prevail. But there, there might be some moments of tension. There's the whole kryptonite scene where he's dumped in the water, right? That is nothing like Jesus and the demonic. It is far more like your husband and a house cat than it is like Superman and Lex Luthor. The demonic can scratch and fight, and they do, which is why we are at war as Christians. But the power differential is so drastic that they pull out all the tricks, and yet Jesus, with one command, gives them permission to flee these two men's bodies. The demonic recognized the person of Jesus and the power of Jesus. And then finally, the demonic recognized the plan of Jesus. Verse 29 ends with this. They, they ask, have you come here to torture us? And they say this, read this with me if you don't mind. Before the appointed time. You've got to imagine that the devil is in hell, wherever the devil hangs out. Um, and he is hearing secondhand about this interaction between some demons and Jesus. And he realizes how much they've just disclosed. And he says to himself, what in the hell, guys? <laughs> A little pastor joke for you there. <laughs> Do you realize that there are 12 guys following Jesus around who are going to record everything you say? Yeah, 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 I know one of them's a bad apple. I got that part. It's part, I, I'm very much aware of that. Thank you. But there are 11 more, one of which is an eyewitness, and he's going to literally record these words. And people all across the world for thousands of years will realize that we recognize the person, the power, and the plan of Jesus Christ. And as a result, we now benefit from this knowledge. What's interesting is they say before the appointed time. They seem to miss a very crucial and critical theological point. We talk about it at Waterstone all the time. Remember I said I'm showing you my cards, right? I want you to get that before you leave here today, that the enemy of God is real, that the kingdom has come, and that you have a role. Well, we're talking about the kingdom right now. And theologians, they refer to this moment and moments like this as the as inaugurated eschatology. It's a fancy word to say God's kingdom is breaking through. See, here's what the demons know. They, they know today, by the way, that there's this present age. You and I live in that. And Jesus' first coming has showed up. They're not used to this, but it's happening. We got to figure it out. Okay, fine. And that begins the age to come. And we at, at Waterstone, we refer to that as the kingdom of God. And what they don't realize is the already part of the already, but not yet. It means that God's kingdom is currently here coming on earth, and yet is not fully or in totality established. Can I just break away from this for a minute and say, this is why at Waterstone we get so excited about the kingdom of God. Oh, we on the pastoral team, we recognize that we talk about it so much, there is a danger of it becoming or even sounding uh, worn out or trite, but let me explain. It is the kingdom of God that miraculously frees people of addictions. 
It is the kingdom of God that still to this day, no thanks to the TSA, still drives out demons. In fact, throughout the four gospels, what we see is Jesus's ministry is described as one in which he preaches the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, and drives out demons. That is why we get so excited about the kingdom of God. The enemy knows God's person, God's power, and his plan. You know, it's a little like a man rushing around, um, shoving in all these different compartments on a ship, uh, silverware and jewelry and whatever he can in a satchel. And all the while, every boat on the Titanic has already left the ship. It can only make so much of an impact. And don't get me wrong, it can make an impact. And the devil knows that. God's enemies know that. And that's why they still to this day war against the will of God. But we also must know that. And so we must engage. But like that man on the Titanic, it can only do so much damage. So then the question becomes, if God's enemy is real, you guys are going to get tired of it, but sorry. If God's enemy is real, his kingdom has come, then what do we do? What's our role in all of this? Well, I want to give two sort of pastoral encouragements today as we um, ask that question and begin to wrap. But I want to begin first by encouraging us to be aware of the complexities of the topic. It would be um, irresponsible of me to preach on spiritual warfare to many people who acknowledge on some level spiritual realities and not severely caution us that I should encourage us that we must be extremely slow to assign a spiritual interpretation to situations in our life. Simply put, there has been a lot of evil done in the name of fighting evil, right? So we must be extremely cautious before we interpret something as spiritual warfare in our world. The number one way that I've seen this, and uh, sadly, one of the ways I see this most often, is that we assign a spiritual meaning when there is physical and mental health issues. Some of you know this because you at yourself have experienced what damage bad theology can do. Uh, let me be clear, at Waterstone and the Bible, really more importantly, by the way, than Waterstone, the Bible expresses that we are integrated people, beings, that we are mind, body, and soul. And so as, as pastors at Waterstone, we always believe that any issue, mental or physical, that we approach covering all the bases, that we begin by prayer, that's why we have a fund where we will pay and help you pay a sizable portion, basically all of it almost, oftentimes, to go to counseling. I go to counseling. My counselor's awesome. He's over at the DTC. I'm about to have a kid. For God's sakes, I have, for goodness sakes, I shouldn't say um, I should go to counseling, right? Seriously, transitions of life. Sometimes it's a routine thing. And it's also why we move people along to say, but maybe counseling's not enough right now, and medication is. We believe as Christians that we are integrated beings. We have to be careful not to apply a spiritual price tag to a scenario of our life. You know, when you go to seminary, they teach you how to do something called exegete. 
It basically means you read the Bible and you ask, what does this passage mean? What's the purpose? What's, what's beyond the page of this passage? Unfortunately, I see people, many people, myself included, doing that with life circumstances. I've even seen atheists do this. People who don't believe in God will ask, why is God doing this to me? We as Christians, and if you're not a Christian, this part's for you too. We have to be slow to speak and cautious about assigning a spiritual interpretation to our struggles in our life. And then finally, but what about when it is spiritual warfare? What do we do then? Ephesians 6, Paul, who writes a lot about this, he writes this. If you don't mind humoring me in one last time, reading the underline with me, he says, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. This passage is fascinating because it's after the um, section where he has just spelt out the armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword, the helmet. And yet there are a few things to point out about where he comes to now. One, he has saved prayer for the end. Theologians say that is likely to emphasize it. They didn't have highlighters or bold font or anything else in that day and age. And so they position things in strategic places too. It's the only tool against the enemy that is not assigned to a weapon or material uh, parallel. And three, he uses the word all four times. So what do we do when we recognize the enemy of God is real, that God's kingdom has come, but we have a role? The number one thing that we do, and I think the first and the last way that we actively engage the kingdom of God is prayer. It's the reason we've decided that this is an important enough topic to take 30 minutes of your time, and I mean that, to really hammer it home, that it's Christians we are called, we have a role, to play in the cosmic battle, and it begins with prayer. There are a lot of great 90s movies, but there's one which everyone knows is the greatest of all time. And it, my friends, is Beethoven, all right? Now, you might not remember all the details from Beethoven. Maybe you haven't taken out that VHS in a long time, Uh, but Beethoven, uh, the little boy on the right there, His name is Ted, and you can kind of see this picture with Ted, a scene at school. Uh, I vividly remember sitting on the carpet with all my brothers around and watching this where the milk gets poured. Anyone remember this scene like specifically? Yeah, okay. A couple embarrassed people. That's great. I'll be by myself. So Ted is here. He's got his nice little sweater on and button up and these 90s bullies who, man, what an embarrassing thing to be as a 90s bully, right? With your bandana and your spiked hair and everything. And so they pour milk on him. So there's this wonderful scene though where we've established Ted is a little dorky and the bullies are mean. Uh, Ted is on the cheese wagon on his way home and Beethoven, who's a smart and bravado-filled St. Bernard dog, sees the bus coming home. And sure enough, the bullies are there ready at the bus stop waiting to meet Ted and push him around to do damage, to oppose Ted, to come against him. 
And Beethoven, who's intuitive and wonderful, jumps over his own fence and jumps over the neighbors and rushes as fast as he can. And what's fascinating about this moment is you've got the bullies standing in front of Ted and Ted, and this is a great scene where Beethoven comes behind Ted, the little boy, and he shows his teeth, he growls, he allows his presence to be known and manifest, and the bullies begin to slow down and back away and tower, cower in fear. And Ted, who's not really aware of what's going on, the next morning, he's really overjoyed. He wakes up and he's got those little, gotta love the 12-year-old muscles, right? Which is literally like one bone and like maybe three veins, right? There's like nothing else there. He's flexing in the mirror. He's realizing how big he looks. But the whole time, it was Beethoven, the dog, standing behind Ted, who was unaware of his presence, who was really the force to be reckoned with. So what do we do when we realize the enemy of God is real? His kingdom has come and you have a role. Paul says we pray and we stand firm because we know that it's not a St. Bernard as lovable as Beethoven was behind us. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. You know what? Uh, To finish that story, when I came into Danielle Reeves' office and Paul Jossen, I ended up talking to Larry and I got the pastoral team the elders of Waterstone came over to my house and prayed over that space. Uh, Beautiful, honestly, kind of a beautiful story. Nick makes fun of me because he thinks I used it as the first pickup line. But I called my then friend, Madison Leon, and I said, hey, you are not going to believe this. I, I know I don't know you super well, but something in me is telling me I need to talk to you. And I said, I explained to her, I think there's a demonic presence in my room. I know that sounds weird. And, and my then friend fasted and prayed with me for three days in that space. And then we read scripture together. Like Paul says, this is a um, uh, weapon we use against the enemy. But you know what we did more than anything else? We prayed for the power of Jesus in that place. And that became a house and a home that for years I experienced God's presence and welcomed students into, had bonfires and gave devotionals and talks I wrote sermons in. God transformed that, but he wanted me to stand there and be present. You know, at Waterstone, and and I want to be clear, I do agree with this. We talk a lot about how prayer oftentimes is less about changing God and more about changing us, that it conforms us to the will of God. But I want to make sure we're really clear, that's not the only purpose of prayer. Well, honestly, what a lame purpose of prayer if that is the only purpose of prayer. In Acts 12, when Peter's in prison and it says that the followers of Jesus, the believers, prayed fervently for him. Do you think they were praying fervently? God, would you just change our will right now? We really want Peter to be released so that your kingdom can come and he can preach more. No, the believers prayed because they didn't just think it changed them. They thought it changed the world. And so today, that is our call, Waterstone, is to pray for God's kingdom to come. That is our role, is to stand firm before the bullies of this world, the forces of evil, knowing that Christ is behind us. So how will you respond, knowing that God's enemy is real, his kingdom has come, and you have a role? This is how they respond. And I want to just emphasize this. The last verse, basically those tending the pigs, they run into town, they tell everyone what's going on and they come out, the whole town, Matthew just basically says a ton of people, they come on out. 
And then, if you would, I really want this to set in, so let's read it all together, if you would. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. The people in Jesus' day and age would rather choose their status quo over their Savior. For us, that is sitting here and realizing the spiritual's real, but I've gotten this far in my life without engaging it. Why not continue? The people of Jesus' day would rather choose their prophets and pigs over people's lives. That's us saying, my life is okay. It's not great, but I've got a job and I've got a family. I don't want to rock the boat. So I don't want to engage spiritually this topic. Let's not make the same mistake and wrong choice that the people in Jesus' day and age did. Let's choose the Savior and his kingdom. And so what does that specifically look like? I think it begins with praying for our world. And that can be uh, praying for Afghanistan and the capital this morning. That can be praying for Haiti. That can be praying for your children or your children's children or your marriage or your child's marriage or your roommate or your coworkers or the spirit to come at Waterstone. But we have a role to play and it is not spiritual confusion or disagreement, it is spiritual warfare. So as we wrap today, we're gonna have stations around the room. And I'm gonna encourage you to really take a step and actually step out into your role in the kingdom of God. And you might not be a person who wants to get up or whatever. Uh, one, I'd encourage you to, be, to consider doing that, to pray for someone else, to pray for yourself, to ask for prayer. Say, would you put a hand on me and just pray for me in the biblical model? But for some of you, it might be just staying in your seat and praying. Lord, I'm going to intercede for people who are not Christians and who I don't know, but are in Kabul right now as the Taliban advances. And I'm going to pray your kingdom come and your will be done. Jesus, would you hear my prayer? May we, the people of Waterstone, know our role in the kingdom of God and step into it. Amen.